is both an honor and a privilege to be here before you this day, to spend some time drawing our hearts close to Christ through the preaching of his word. I'm excited to preach this text to you for many reasons, not the least of which is celebrating and clarifying not only Jeff Lee's call to shepherd God's people, but also that we might together be encouraged in gazing once again at the tremendous charge that the Apostle Paul gives to the Ephesian elders towards the end of his life. It is important to keep in mind that God's Word is given for all of us, even though this morning I may take some liberties in highlighting the uniquenesses and specifics associated with the office of an elder. But make no mistake, God has called all of His children to various forms of ministry. So we will all do well to incline our ears this morning to His Holy Word. Let us consider for a moment the following question. What do we want the Lord to have done through us when our days on earth are at an end? I know there are many folks in this room some of you are in the latter stages of your ministry, be it teaching or ruling elders. Others of you serve faithfully on committees, work consistently in setting up or taking down. Some of you are deacons with all the responsibilities and obligations of that office as well. Some of you lead Bible studies and prayer meetings. Others of you are encouraged actively in evangelism and outreach. I would suspect that many in this room serve regularly in children's ministry and so many, many other areas of church life and of personal devotion. Some of you are in the middle stages of your ministry and you face temptations this morning. Temptations to get bogged down or to lose sight of the calling that God has given you to be faithful in your generation. Some of you are more like me, at the relative beginning of your ministries, possibly even filled with idealistic notions of what the church should be, what it can be. Well, friends, I invite you this morning to yield your hearts to the Lord and to ask Him to reignite a passion, to refocus your minds with clarity and conviction, and to surrender your pre pretense that we would truly be encouraged this morning just as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4-5, that we would this morning be sober-minded, that we would endure suffering, that we would do the work of an evangelist, and that we would fulfill all the obligations of our ministries, and thereby see the kingdom of God grown and spread like wildfire in and through our churches, so that at the end of our ministries, we can know that the Holy Spirit used us mightily, and in according to the calling that he has given each one of us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open to Acts chapter 20. We will begin in verse 17. Let me remind us all that this is God's word. It is spoken to us that we might hear it and receive it by faith. Now from Miletus... 
Paul sent to the to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place in your name. And we ask, Father, that you would speak to us this morning. That you would give us eyes that we would see that you would give us ears, that we would hear, that you would give us hearts that receive your word this morning. We ask that you would stir faith in us, that we would be refreshed and renewed by your word this morning, by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. And all God's people agree. Amen.
as we pick up our text today, it's important to remember the faithfulness of God in bringing about Paul's conversion in the first place. And if y'all are anything like me, Paul's letters and the example of his ministry, the content of his teaching, they very much center my expectations and my understanding of being a pastor, of what it means to serve in the office of a teaching elder. Studying the life of Paul never ceases to overwhelm me with the lavish mercy of God shown in the face of Jesus Christ. In the preceding 11 chapters in the book of Acts, we've seen how God used Paul in a unique and powerful way to establish, expand, and purify his church. Paul was, in so very many ways, on a farewell tour, quite literally to encourage the brethren on his way to Jerusalem with every expectation of his martyrdom. So we begin now in verse 17. Turn with me there. From Miletus, Paul sent word by messenger to Timothy's church in Ephesus, requesting that the elders there come and join him on the coast. And the text we just read is an exposition of Paul's charge to the elders of a church so dear and so sweet to him, pastored by arguably his greatest disciple. Paul's opening remarks to his dear friends and colleagues center on his personal triumphs and trials and the manner and pattern of his lifestyle lived out before them. It makes us ask hard questions about our priorities about our expenditures, and about our very own character and godliness. Now, I'm not sure how humble it is to speak about our own humility, but I do know too many pastors and too many elders who live a life of ministry that is distant from tears, that's not bathed in sacrificial love, and whose goal and center is the avoidance of what Paul's goal seems to be here in the form of trials and sufferings. Of special note in today's message is verse 20. Paul here makes the remarkable statement that he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Friends, we must ask ourselves, from what do we shrink? From what conversations do we withdraw? When do we shrink? Why do we shrink back from declaring what we know to be and proclaim to be absolutely true? All of us who are united to Christ have been entrusted with the greatest news that man has ever or could ever hear. And yet, all too often we shrink we swallow our tongues, we seal our lips, we stick our heads in the proverbial sand, and we do it far more than we even realize, if we're honest. The other half of this gem that Paul casually tosses to us is a foundational thought that we should center our own ministries upon. That the gospel should be taught in public large gatherings, just as we are this morning. 
And that the same gospel should be commonly spoken of in our homes and in our neighbors' homes, in our classrooms, and in our offices. It's not just in our houses that the gospel should be discussed and proclaimed. It's not just in our public gatherings that we should declare the power and majesty of our God. But it should also be taking place in the houses of those whose lives we can influence, whose very names we know. Y'all, the gospel is not just for Sunday and the occasional Tuesday night. The gospel is for every arena, for every home, every individual all over planet Earth. We must ask ourselves questions about how our churches are wrestling with the gospel in corporate and public gatherings. And we must ask ourselves how and where the gospel conversations are being brought into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our offices and classrooms. We must all consider where our church and we ourselves need to grow in boldness, in developing or embracing an eternal vision, whereby we see the people and situations around us with biblical clarity. Where and how can our churches grow in their commitment to go beyond gathering a group on Sundays so that we take the gospel into the public arenas of our communities, into the marketplaces, into the festivals? How do we center the gospel in the life and devotion of each family in and influenced by our churches? Paul tells us where this gospel should be taking place in verse 20. And then he tells us one of the most beautiful and simple summaries of the gospel. That we are to be witnesses to both Jews and Gentiles, to the religious and the irreligious in our communities. And what, we ask, is our central message to them? Our central message of hope is the invitation to repent and believe. We are commanded by God as His ambassadors to share with our lips and our lives the gospel of grace. We must challenge them to trust the righteous life, the atoning death, the victorious resurrection, ascension, and the exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He Himself is the center and the all-consuming glory of the gospel that we would repent of our sin and misery, that we would grab hold of Christ and be united with Him by Spirit-worked faith, that we would be found in Christ. Friends, this is the Gospel that we have been entrusted to preach, to teach, to live, and to love in our homes and throughout our communities. Amen? In verse 22, Paul speaks to us of God's calling to bring him suffering in the form of imprisonment and affliction. So let us in turn ask ourselves this morning, how do we view suffering? Do we see the nobility of suffering only in others? For many of us, we look back upon the history of the church and we marvel at our blessed martyrs. Yet most of us have chosen never to put ourselves in a position where the possibility of emulating their sacrifice could even exist. Most of us live safe and comfortable lives 
often lulled to sleep by the assumption that we aren't being persecuted. That persecution is something that happens far, far, far away. Others of us, I fear, at times provoke a suffering upon ourselves, one that flows from self-righteousness. But in my experience, most of us grow embittered over past some sufferings and grumblingly endure any and all present sufferings. In fact, if we're really honest, we simply fear suffering. I imagine for many of us, we cannot with any integrity claim verse 24 is true of us. That we do not account our life of any value or hold our lives as precious to ourselves. As is so often true in our experience of this Christian life, we ourselves are the hindrance. It is the dominion of self that we have been freed from in Christ. And yet it is from the dominion of self that we need our affections renewed, our strengths replenished, and our nostrils intoxicated with the very beauty of Christ in order to beat back the darkness of sin, the darkness of self, the darkness of unbelief, so that our lives would be grounded not in our self-esteem, but rather that we would see as our only goal finishing our course and the ministry that we received from our Lord Jesus and therefore testify in our generation, in our communities, before our congregations and before our children, before our neighbors, before a watching world all around us that the gospel of grace has been given to us. The simple Simple truth is that if we are in Christ, then we have been crucified with Christ. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, your life is simply not your own if you are in Christ. It's His. More on that in a bit. It seems that far too many in the church today fail to understand the extent and power of our union with Christ and the freedom it truly brings. Our lives are not our own to do with as we please. Most in our culture would claim that being free means that they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. But friends, let us declare with boldness and power this morning that that is a biblical definition of slavery. That you are a slave to your selfish desires. That you are a slave who can only do what you want whenever you want. Romans chapter 6 and many other places makes absolutely clear to us that if we have been united to Christ by spirit-worked faith, then we no longer serve sin as our master. The power of sin. And our union with it is forever broken at the moment we first believe. Jeff, this is the gospel that you have been taught. This is the gospel that you are entrusted to teach as you engage in this ministry. And not just he alone, friends. All of us, all of us who have been united to Christ are to repent of our particular sins particularly 
and to trust Christ and His righteousness alone and to walk in the new obedience that the Holy Spirit is empowering inside every one of us. Do not hear me say that sinless perfection is attainable in this life. Because it's not. But let us affirm together this morning that the Holy Spirit lives in all who are united to Christ and that life brings power and freedom and joy bursting forth in all in whom He dwells. And then this text begins to switch gears on us. In fact, for many of us, it becomes a disheartening text. Paul then tells and confirms to the Ephesian elders that this is their last meeting together. That they will no longer see each other face to face. And what follows in the rest of this text does so with that thought in full view. This is their last conversation on this side of glory. Paul offers us in verse 26 one of the most astounding and important lines in all of Scripture. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What a mighty statement. And what an overwhelming thought. So we must ask ourselves, we must ask our congregations, do we shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God? Are there aspects or elements of the Word of God that we ignore? Perhaps that we merely downplay? Is there truth that has been revealed in Scripture for which there's a distaste on our tongues? We as believers, recipients of God's Word, have been entrusted with the whole counsel of God. We must not skew or diminish, downplay, or usurp the true and clear teaching of Scripture, no matter what persecutions or promises are offered. We must give the complete message of revelation. We must never trim the gospel to appeal to the tastes or sidestep the prejudices of the people to whom we offer it. The greatest safeguard for this that I have placed upon myself is that I teach verse-by-verse exposition. It's not that systematic theology and topical discussion do not have a place in our pulpits. Not saying that. But the only way that I can be sure that I don't just rock on my favorite hobby horses week after week to the detriment of my congregation is to place myself under the yoke, the oh-so-joyful yoke of teaching an entire book of the Bible without leaving a single verse uncommented on, its message unexplained, or its truth unheralded. I'm speaking now specifically to the elders and pastors, even the professors among us. Hi, Howard. What protections do you have in place to assure not only yourself, but your students, your congregations, that you are in fact declaring the whole counsel of God? Certainly not in one week, never in one lecture or class or sermon, but can you at the end of your ministry, say, 
that you declared the whole counsel of God. And as such, fear not an accountability conversation with your master and your king when you see him face to face one day. In verse 28, Paul's admonition continues. His encouraging words develop under the amazing truth that God the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, has made us overseers, bishops, elders, over a particular group of people. We know the universal truth that there is eternally one flock, one elect, one gigantic body, the universal church. But we also see here the installment of local leadership and organization within the confines of the establishment of a local congregation. We must remember that Paul here is speaking to a session of elders that lead and love a particular church in a particular city. God himself has called us and equipped us for the careful edification of this flock that he obtained with his own blood. Just as Dennis E. Johnson writes, elders hold office not out of their own initiative, but because God the Holy Spirit, working through the discernment of the church, recruited and installed them in the task. That's precisely what is taking place this morning. Part of the function of this Sunday worship celebration is to ordain and install Jeff Lee to this mighty office. And as a personal comment, I truly believe that this church and its presbytery have shown tremendous discernment in recruiting, training, and installing this dear friend and godly man. It has been a remarkable privilege to share not only the gospel time and time again with Jeff, but also to share our very lives together. Whether we are near or far from one another, the bonds of the Spirit run deep. There's just a special friendship here between us, and I'm honored to share in your special day. Changing gears back to the text, ever so graciously and fervently, the Apostle Paul warns that after his departure, there will be thieves and scoundrels, false teachers, who will seek to consume our flocks for their own gain. They will seek to create a following after themselves rather than a following after Christ. The problem arises when some elders become intoxicated by their own influence over others. And they begin to twist and pervert the gospel in order to attract disciples after themselves rather than disciples after Christ. May we in this room never be such men. Paul wants us to remember and be certain that we are not ruthlessly distant or somehow transcendent over the members of our churches. Paul informs us that night and day he admonished the brethren with tears. It makes me ask the question, for whom do you weep? For whom do you lose sleep? When was the last time your joy was intermingled in the affairs of the flock you have been entrusted with? 
Now, obviously, we can become idolaters in so very many creative ways. We can become people pleasers. And our investment in their lives can be for our sole benefit rather than Christ. But I fear that in many churches, we're becoming more like doctors, seeking to maintain professional distance rather than sacrificially giving ourselves for the proclamation and instruction, the building up of the church. May we never be men who get more emotional over a sports victory or crushing defeat than we do the godliness of the marriages, the godliness of the children, the godliness of those in the neighborhoods that we have been entrusted to shepherd and reach. Further in the text, Paul seeks to offer in verse 32 what seems to be a recommissioning, a word of encouragement to refocus their attention to the Word of God, which is able to build us up and give us an inheritance among the Beloved. We know that Scripture has taught us that pastors are worthy of double honor. We know that there's a biblical foundation for fundraising and for a pastor being able to give his full time, his full attention to the ministry of the Word and to prayer, and thereby make his living on the Gospel and the generosity of the local church that supports him. But it is also important more than that. It is also essential for us to give out more than we take. May we always keep the scales balanced toward what we have released and given as opposed to what we have taken and received. That's where Paul is going in the next three verses. That we should always offer more to our congregations than what we would take from them. You would do well to heed that warning. And then we get Luke's closing comments on this section. That when he had finished this word of encouragement, they once again took a posture that was oh so familiar to them. They knelt down and prayed. Oh, how sweet the times and moments where the brethren in faith are gathered together in humble and expressed reliance on Christ through prayer. And unashamedly, in fact, I truly believe joyfully, Luke tells us that there was not a dry eye in the house. See, that's the beauty of the word preached. It reminds us of how small we are and how great and glorious is our God, our calling and the office to which He has entrusted us. It is in knowing and seeing the potential for our ruin that we grab hold of grace, that we surrender ourselves to the coming King and all of His kingdom. In that death to self, we find the riches of riches, the most noble of tasks, and the truly highest of sacrifices. And no time in the Word is complete without a yielding of all in prayer without a pursuit of the sacred reliance on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring about all of these things. What a glorious time of fellowship we have witnessed this morning. Brothers, I pray, friends, I pray that our gospel remains this pure. 
I pray that the time with our session is given as much to the passions of prayer and the ministry of the Word as they are to the business elements of church life. It was in a time of prayer, after all, that Paul was himself first called to the mission field in Antioch as the elders were gathered in fasting and prayer. Friends, Brothers, sisters, does God move in our hearts this way? Or have our hearts grown stale or stagnant? Our expectations low-level adjusted. Whether the sunset of your ministry is approaching, or you are at a proverbial fork in the road in the middle of your ministries, or you, like me, are just beginning this journey, let us all center, or perhaps recenter ourselves, recommit our lives, not to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, be it in public or from house to house, even heart to heart. And in that sacred reliance on the power and move of the Holy Spirit, may we beseech Him to storm the very gates of hell and gather from among our neighborhoods, our classrooms, our cubicles, and our offices a people who repent and are truly saved by Christ. And may we be ever mindful that suffering is never our enemy, but rather the uncontrolled dominion of self. So let me end with my final encouragement to you all that you are called by God Himself to speak the Gospel. So speak it. Speak, my friends. Declare the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Be bold in evangelism. Be relentless in your desire to see every thought captured and conformed by the whole counsel of God that we preach. Repent of your selfish ambition. Repent of your timidity. Receive forgiveness and restoration. And trust that in remembering your union with Christ, that He will lead you out in triumphant victory. And let us remember afresh this morning the precious blood of Jesus Christ that purchased us to begin with. Amen? Please pray with me. Father, we do indeed acknowledge our sin this morning. But we also acknowledge our Savior. Lord, you have done all that you have required of us. And we rejoice. Lord, there's more to be done in ceremony and formality this morning. But we ask that the conviction of your Holy Spirit would remain in our hearts, propelling us to trust you, stirring faith in us, and leading us in new obedience. Father, we want this church to bear the kind of fruit that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. And so we rely on you to use us to do that. We too pray for Jeff Lee, we thank you for his family and his friends and the long list of mentors that you have used to bring him to this moment. 
I'm privileged to be counted among them. But Father, we ask that you would not slow down in his sanctification, that you would not slow down in the work that you are using him for. Father, I pray that the power and conviction of the Spirit would remain on him and that he would turn to your word each day to find all the strength that you would give him there. It's in Jesus' name we all pray this morning. And all God's people agree. Amen. Thank you.